missing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hello. Tonight, we're talking about computer chemistry, hadron happenings, and coyotes' conundrum. We're also building on our last episode's theme of effective communication in the second half, where we'll have Jason's conversation with David Goldstein, who is working to fight disinformation. But first, the news. Our first story takes us back again to the pre-Steffi era, to when Chris Goulet told us about the hotshot AI called AlphaFold that was helping to predict how proteins would fold based on their amino acid makeup. Since that time, AlphaFold has dramatically increased our understanding of proteins, and the program has gotten so good at learning about these protein data sets that it's even learned how amino acids would interact with each other, achieving in a few months what I have been failing at for over a decade, understanding chemistry. So what do we think about this AI that is just dunking on my ability to, like, figure out what chemistry is. This is absolutely fantastic. It's going to um, quicken the pace of biochemical research, I suspect, which is, you know, going to be very useful as we try to understand how organisms are put together, how medicines are created, and so on and so forth. But I still want to go back to what I said last time, which is this is getting one step closer to... <laughs> how right and um and it's it's astonishing how quickly we're getting there um i'm maybe not as fearful of it as i let on last time or played on last time but at the same time i am it's astonishing to me how quickly this is advancing um and we're seeing this machine learning moving at such a rapid pace um that Mm -hmm. you know i can see where science fiction stories get their origins it's pretty amazing what they can do with computers when they have these artificial intelligence programs that are doing machine learning on these large data sets and then actually able to extract from that and get this new information at so much faster than we could do before. And this really kind of goes back to, we touched this before, meaningfully implementing your algorithms and making sure that mm-hmm. you have a large representative data set. Probably more important for other uses than this. But it's pretty fascinating what they're able to do. You know, I also wonder, is this just one of the many things that's getting the Science Night bump? Like, we talked about this Mm -hmm. about six months ago, and (laughs) look at what they've done in that time. I mean, you know, we're revisiting time crystals. We're always talking about new worms. Uh, Are they just trying to get our attention? And, you know, we get it. We get it, science. We're on to you. Yes, and... How we're publishing data is going a lot faster, too. So we're seeing insight to the scientific method progress. Also Science Night. I mean, that's right. That's that is, the and that is why. <laughs> that is why that's happening. Science Night is the reason for these open access mm-hmm. uh, repositories for data. And uh, that's the bottom line. 
Yeah. We're the catalyst because, you know, people know that we're not going to talk to closed science people. You got to open up those data sets. That's that's how Lee Berger got on. Speaking of chemistry, if we're the catalyst now, that's a big change from my usual position as the rate limiting reagent in every, yeah. every reaction. <laughs> I'm usually what slows everything down. I'm going to throw another number at you, which I found fascinating from this article. And it, they were talking about the different forms that these proteins can can, can take. Um, which is why this machine learning approach is great. A typical protein can adopt 10 raised to 300 different forms. This number is so massive that it's greater than the number of atoms in the universe. 10 to the power of 300. That is it. Yes. Like an yeah. astronomical number here. Yes. And this, this AI program has mapped out half of the known protein structures already it's wild. which is incredible yeah actually to me what was really fascinating about all of this was that if the amino acid sequence that was making up the protein was broken in some place it would fold the different parts of it differently yeah. than if they were together mm -hmm. right so it learned exactly how yeah. that would then yeah. happen that just blew my mind because that was, you know, like, that's like a calculator calculation for this computer, right? I mean, it's like, a, it's arithmetic. Sure. That's all it is, is arithmetic. And to me, like, I can't even comprehend this number or how this works. So how, Steffi, maybe you can answer this. How would this program benefit from having some, some time crystals? Uh, is this is this the dumb math you were talking about where it's like, yeah, it's really not going to do so much with it? Yeah, I I think... I think this is more suited. I mean, it's doing really well just the way it is, right? Yeah. It's coming to all these answers pretty fast. So I don't think we need to throw a time crystal at it. Mm -hmm. We should save our time crystals for other things. Yeah. Save like, it for the boss battle. Time travel. Do you think this AI just, you know, it gathers the numbers it needs to crunch and then it just puts on an episode of Science Night and listens while it does it? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I Yeah, I bet. That's why our back catalog is going up so much. Uh, so, uh, thank you. Thank you to AlphaFold2 for your dedicated support. Uh, why not buy a t-shirt while you're at it? Speaking of things I don't really understand, on July 5th, the world's most powerful particle accelerator, the Large Hadron Collider run by CERN, powered up again in hopes of learning more about the subatomic particles that make up the universe. And you probably heard all about the things that this would cause, like creating a black hole and ending the world, or opening up a portal through which chaos demons would enter and ending the world. Or Flash. Or Flash, or mm. somehow causing Back to the Future 1 Jennifer played by Claudia Wells, to meet up with Back to the Future 2 Jennifer, played by Elizabeth Shue, to meet and causing the space-time continuum to collapse and ending the world. But instead, they were able to observe three previously unknown subatomic particles, teaching us more about the quantum realm. And I'm realizing now that I feel like we could have done this a lot cheaper if we just gave Paul Rudd those pin particles and, and like a camcorder and had him go down and just video record what was going on down there. He gets real small in that Ant Man movie, right? It's I don't true. think he's small enough though. No, we're it's called the quantum realm. We're talking quarks. Oh yeah, he's in the was. Steffi, let's what what are we what are we doing here? So we got these three new particles, right? Okay. These three new particles, what does it mean? Let's talk about what we're usually used to. Protons and neutrons, right? In atoms that we were talking about earlier. Inside of those, 
What's fundamentally making up protons and neutrons are quarks. You can't break them down further than quarks. So what they were looking at in this case was you're inside a particle accelerator, accelerating these particles to really high speeds. And typically they'll use like a proton and then smash them together to see what makes up them. Um, And that can tell us a lot about the fundamental nature of our universe and all of the forces that we interact with that interact with matter. So in this article, they're talking about new types of pentaquark particle and the first ever pair of teraquarks. So Steffi, can you help me understand quarks a little bit better? So my underst- you mentioned earlier that they are the building blocks of protons and neutrons. If I understand correctly, is that right? Yep. Okay, good. I just want to make sure because if that was not correct, then we can just stop the conversation, <laughs> right? Yeah. Since it is correct, my question is this. They have, a, they have partial electrical charges. What does that mean? How can you have a partial electrical charge? Isn't a, a charge a charge? So this is what has always sort of yeah. held me up, and I'm hoping you can help me understand. Uh, that's a great question. Okay, when you say electrical charge, that is a very specific term that relates to the charge of a complete proton is one unit of charge. That's positive charge. Negative charge is that equivalent to the electrical charge carried by an electron. That's okay. where that comes from. It's it's that definition right there. So it's one electron, one proton. Yeah. I got it. Okay. Exactly. Because the, it requires three quarks, right, to build a proton, right? You're going to yep. have two that have slightly positive charge and one that has a potentially slightly negative charge. Yeah. Yep. So you add those up to get the total charge of the particle. Got it. Okay. So you're talking electrical charge. I am. And I will say really quickly that like, even though I understand exactly what you just said, I still just don't get this. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I can't put my mind around it. Right. But I it's mean, you amazing. know, I, right. And there are people that I talk to who can't put their mind around deep time. Right. And that's something that's very, I'm very comfortable with. Right. Talk about 65 million years ago. I have a certain picture in my mind that's different if we, than if we talk about like 300 million years ago, which is a different yeah. picture in my mind. Right. And yeah. For some people, it's all the same thing. This is all the same thing, right? It's just yeah. we're talking about electrical charge soup here for me. Yeah. So that when you talk about electrical charges, you know, the interaction between protons and electrons, that's like the the electromagnetic force, right? Between those particles, right? Um, and I, I hinted at this where it kind of tells you about maybe more about the fundamental forces or interactions of nature. Quarks also have what's called color charge. Ooh, do tell. What does that mean? Yes, it's not an actual color, but color charge, the strong nuclear force connects the positive and negative color charge. So like positive and negative electrical charge is related to the electromagnetic force. The color charge of quarks connects the strong nuclear force, which is what binds the proton, the nucleus together. Ah, so it's really like uh, it's like uh, listening to baseball on the radio, where you have the play-by-play announcer that really kind of tells you how things are at, are behaving, <laughs> yes. and the color commentary, which holds the whole story together. There you go. Yeah, the guy who makes ratings okay. happen. Okay, I got it. I got mm-hmm. it. Still, quarks don't make it. any sense to me, but I will say this, right? So Amazing. we're talking about tetra, talking about tetraquarks and pentaquarks, meaning that we have um, conglomerations of four and five quarks respectively together yep. whereas we were talking about um i guess they'd be called triquarks we're talking about protons and electrons and that kind of stuff they're just yeah. called protons and electrons they are 
area. Never mind. Either no. way, we're talking. We're talking about well, because you know they they require three quarks, right? To yeah. To to build a proton. Anyway, the idea being that you know we're building up the number of quarks here, and the only thing I was thinking about when I read this was Rick and Morty and the Gotrons. Um, I don't know if you've seen that episode where Rick <laughs> is trying to assemble the uh, Gotron Lion, which is a ripoff mm-hmm. of uh, Voltron, right? And then he summons, so then he, you know, the, everyone can get the whole Smith family can get together. You know, they can all be their individual ferrets, or then they can come together as one giant robot. And then mm-hmm. Rick summoned, uh, you know, families from the other from other universes to all build their own Gotrons, and then they could assemble their Gotrons, their ferrets. In individually into their own robots and then together into one giant conglomerate robot, right? And that's what I was thinking about. <laughs> yeah, that's what they're looking tetra-quarks. at. That's really what they're looking at, like how it's constructed. But yeah, odd number of quarks, baryons, and then even as mesons. Yep, it's so, so still so, totally there's lost so on me. so many words. There's so many. This, is, this goes back to there's so much jargon in physics. There's so much jargon in science. Sure. Yeah. I cannot add a lot to this particular story, but what I can do is marvel at how the scientific method has gotten us to this point, right? Like you don't just flip on a flip on a hadron collider because you're like, oh, I want to see what's inside this. We gotta do a lot of stuff before you get to this point, including like tunnel miles underground so that you can make the big loop in France and Switzerland, right? It's pretty amazing how large the structure is to to accelerate these particles up to high speeds. Because if you're getting them up to such high speeds, you have to have them take these curves, these bends, without slowing down. So like if you're going to do a race car around a track, the wider bend, you can keep the speed up. So it's kind of like what you're doing with these particles. And going back to kind of why this matters kind of goes down to the fundamental forces. There's a lot of theoretical models that kind of describe how matter interacts. And we call these like these heavier particles, exotic hadrons. It's things made out of quarks, essentially. Um, And they're usually described as single units of tightly bound quarks. And other models envision them as like pairs of standard hadrons loosely bound in a like a molecule like structure. So while we're doing these studies, we can kind of probe into how are these things bound together? What how do they construct? And it's pretty amazing. But it seems like every time every time we hit the power button, we find out something new and amazing. Yeah, it's because you get things up to higher speeds so you can probe heavier heavier objects. You bring up a great point too. It's you mentioned that every time we kind of turn it on at higher power, you learn something new. I was looking at more uh, more into how many tetraquarks and pentaquarks have they actually discovered, because there's been several of them. And some of them were actually found like five years after they ran the experiments because they get so oh, yeah? much. Yeah, because they get so much data and it takes so, you know, it takes the people looking for this particle to actually find it because you're actually not measuring for some of these the exact particle. It's kind of the shadows or indications of what might have been there and kind of inferring that from the data. So like if you're going to look at, let's say, a car crash or something, you see things spread out everywhere, you know 
those probably started as a couple of cars and now it's mangled metal and you kind of use physics, your physics knowledge to reconstruct what actually happened. You can kind of do it that way. You can, we can look for signatures in detectors too. You know, I feel like in the past two episodes, I almost think that there is the fringe of a possibility of a universe where a James Reed can maybe understand physics. And it all has to do with the effective science communication of Dr. Steffi Deem. So maybe just for my own education, we'll be having more physics fun time on, uh, on future episodes. And yes, if you are asking yourself, the fun is spelled with a PH yes. for the alliteration. Well, let, let's move from quarks to bones with our next story. And instead of like a full intro, I'm just going to ask my good friend Jason Organ about some hypotheticals to kind of bring us into our next yes. story. Jason, what would you say if I were to tell you I found a very large, potentially primate skull in the Canadian wilderness? I would wonder who dropped a cast or a toy. Mm. Okay. Well, what if I told you I removed the skull from its surroundings despite having no field training or a background in archaeology, paleontology, or biology? Well, my first inclination would still be it's a toy. But sure. if it were real and you moved it... It's now a toy lacking yes, right. context. If it was real and you removed it, um, you'd have some serious issues. If it was primate... You'd have some serious, serious issues mm-hmm. to deal with because, um, you know, every primate is on the at least watch list for endangered species. And so, sure. you know, carrying those uh, those remains across state lines, across international borders, could get you in trouble. Why do you ask? So you're saying that I shouldn't smuggle it across international borders, breaking no less than three federal laws in two countries, while simultaneously implying that I've discovered the skeletal remains of Bigfoot. Is that what you're kind of hinting at there? That's a that's kind of a bad look? A little bit. Yeah. So that is exactly what YouTuber, and I do not say scientist in this context, I will say YouTuber Coyote Peterson has recently done, and people are starting to wonder what he's up to. I think there might be shenanigans. I mean, that's being nice about it. Shenanigans. Yeah. So let's let's like actually talk about what happened. So YouTuber Coyote Peterson has taken grainy photos about what is potentially a large primate skull, but what almost every scientist that's looked at it has said is that is a gorilla cast that you can buy from boneclones.com. But we don't know because he's not actually showing this to anybody, uh, which is also part of the problem, that he allegedly found in the mud in Canada and has brought back to his home in the United States without telling anybody about it. And he is alleging, but not really alleging, more like insinuating that this may be a Bigfoot skull. And also, he has an Animal Planet show coming out, and who knows if this is some viral marketing or not. I do. Yeah. I think I, th- I, think <laughs> I know. I think I know. Or at least I have a pretty... I have a pretty strong suspicion that it's not a real gorilla skull. Yeah, you think so? And as someone who's actually, I've spent a lot of time measuring gorilla skulls, if you can believe it or not, um, having, you know, done a lot of work in museum collections over the years. And I, in fact, actually have, have carried primate remains across borders before 
now border between Washington, D.C. and the state of Maryland, but still. And that, did that require paperwork? It did. So I, I had paperwork. It was Smithsonian Institution specimens that I carried back to the lab that I was working in as a graduate student in Baltimore. And so I know that you need a lot of paperwork just to move it within the states. To move it 20 right, miles. Exactly. And, and so, and, you know, even furthermore, I have actually borrowed specimens from other museums that were primates. And I'm mentioning this in particular because primates require paperwork, whereas other species don't always. So what do I mean? Well, um, New York City, home of the American Museum of Natural History, happens to have a really nice collection of some South American monkeys that the Smithsonian doesn't have. And my dissertation work was on uh, Central and South American monkey tail use and the biomechanics behind that. So how do bones and muscles of the tails of different monkeys, specifically ones that can hang from their tails or the so-called prehensile tailed monkeys and ones that can't or non-prehensile tailed monkeys, how do those structures differ in the, in the bones and muscles? And I needed some specimens from New York to be able to complete the work that I was doing. And I was do- using a CT scanner. So I was taking three-dimensional um, x-rays of these bones. And so rather than bring the CT scanner, which was desktop, so I could, you know, it was portable enough that it could be moved, but it was a non-trivial sort of movement, right? And this was almost 20 years ago now, right? I mean, that technology has come a lot further. Wow. Um, <laughs> Right. It's amazing. But nevertheless, in order for me to, to do that, they said, you know what, that sounds like too much of a hassle. Why don't we just, why don't we just loan those, those skeletons to you for a while? But because they were primates, they couldn't come to my lab. They couldn't come to the lab I was working in. They had to come from the American Museum of Natural History to the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History, the National Museum of Natural History, where I was a research associate, in order for me to do the work there. They would allow me to move the CT scanner to D.C., to do the work there, but they didn't have space for me to do it in New York. But because they were primates, they had to come directly to another museum. Um, they couldn't come to me. Whereas I had other species I was looking at also that were not monkeys, that were not primates, and they could be shipped directly to the lab in Baltimore. And so I don't believe for a second that this individual is telling the truth. But if this individual is telling the truth, I don't believe for a second that this individual hasn't broken several, several laws. <laughs> Dozens of laws. Maybe that's, do you think that's why he's doing the Bigfoot angle? Because I guess Big Feet uh, would, would not necessarily be classified as primates. So maybe he's like, no, this isn't a primate. This is a Sasquatch, uh, which is, and then we have right, to have right, the, yeah. you know, the philosophical debate of do we add Sasquatch or whatever the scientific name would be to the uh, primate clade? Where do they fit on that? And that would be, he'd probably get away by that point. Except that he's got a YouTube channel, so which I suspect yeah. is monetized, which means that you know, he'll keep coming back to it. I don't know. Did we check on that lately? Does he still have a YouTube channel? Maybe. <laughs> Let's not yeah, click on it. It's. I, mm-hmm. You know what? I'm still like boneclones.com is a mm-hmm. real website. It is. It's great. Mm-hmm. I learned mm-hmm. something in this yeah. segment. That's awesome. There are a couple of different companies that, that make models of fossil specimens, fossils, right? And bone clones is one of them. Another one is Skulls Unlimited. These are both heavily used companies. But yeah. different individual casts 
look better at one versus the other and vice versa. And so there's not, you know, the accuracy of them is questionable sometimes. Um, and so even if this was a gorilla skull from one of these resailers, it's possible that it looks sufficiently different <laughs> enough from other gorillas that it could yeah. be confused, right? So, you know, I want to give someone the benefit of the doubt. I don't want to give Coyote Peterson the benefit of the doubt. He probably put he probably put that yeah. poor gorilla cast in the microwave to make it look a little funky. Uh, took a heat gun to certain sections of it. Tea stained it. This is what actually, I don't really care what Coyote Peterson does. He can do whatever he wants, as long as he's not actually breaking federal law. <laughs> But if he just like put a cast of a gorilla skull in mud and is trying to like make people think it's Sasquatch, like whatever, it's a bad thing to do. It's really dumb. But he's probably just marketing his anal planet show. What this is actually doing is like having a very high profile person making it seem okay to just like pull stuff out of the ground, and uh, that's that's not always a good thing, especially if somebody were to find a primate skull somewhere and just travels with it. Uh, because Coy- Coyote Peterson told him it was cool. Let's be clear. We actually do pull primate skulls. We, uh, not me, but um, paleontologists pull primate skulls out of the rock in North America mm-hmm. every year. They're just much, much older and much, much smaller than than gorillas or, dare I say it, sas- Sasquatch. Do they have the same restrictions? I don't actually don't know. Do fossilized skulls of fossilized primate remains do they have the same travel restrictions um you know i don't know the answer to that um i think that those laws have changed a little yeah, bit over the last few years even um yeah. what i do know though is that it is possible to remove them from the rock and take them back somewhere else so every year when i was in grad school a contingency from my grad school mm-hmm. department would head out to the bighorn basin in wyoming and excavate all sorts of eocene aged primate material and bring them back to Baltimore to be cleaned and then accessioned into the paleontology collection at the Smithsonian. So I know they can be brought. It's just, I don't know what the permit laws for that is, right? The accessioning process was more than a tweet, right? (laughs) There's more to it than just being a YouTuber and tweeting about it. (laughs) Yeah, there's some provenance associated with it. You know, there's, you know, information about yeah, like sort of context, other taxa, other species that are found in association, right? You know, mm-hmm. all the different parts cataloged, all that. Maybe we should talk really quickly about like archaeological, con- paleontology, like context in a dig site. Can you, you you've done have. some field work and can probably talk a little bit about what that is. And sure. Why it's important. Well, yeah. So, you know, one of the things that needs to be understood, um, which I, you know, science generally writ large doesn't understand that that paleontological sciences or archaeological sciences, which are historic sciences, which is fundamentally different than the ahistoric sciences that Steffi's doing, for example, where she's you know studying fusion reactions, right? There's not there's not a deep time element to that, right? Presumably, the you know law of uniformitarianism here would predict that fusion reactions happen the same now as they did three million years ago, or something along those lines. We have to operate under that assumption still. That said. Whenever you take a fossil or an archaeological artifact out of the ground, you are destroying the data set. And so everything has to be cataloged very specifically and mapped very specifically so that way each individual piece that is removed can be reassembled in 3D space 
visually somewhere, whether that's in a 3D model or 2D maps that are, you know, superimposed on each other so that you can get a three-dimensional sense of what's going on, but in different layers. It's just very different. So things are mapped very precisely so that that can be reconstructed later because every time you excavate, you destroy what you're actually trying to preserve. So this actually goes back to goes back to what Lee Berger was saying about the caves, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. he was saying, you know, um, in our conversation, he said something along the lines of, there are plenty of fossils still down in the Dinaletti cave, right, in the chamber. And maybe he'll go down after them sometime, or maybe he won't. Maybe he'll wait for someone else to do it, or maybe no one will ever do it. And that's because every time you go down there, you're actually destroying the record you're trying to preserve. And maybe at this point in our advancement in that field, we don't have the technology to make something, make some new discovery about those fossils, but maybe 15 years, 20 years from now, with that site still intact, we'll have better capabilities to understand the context of everything. And if we save it for then, we might be better off. Yeah. We also talked about like the asteroid chunks that came back. They're saving a bunch of it for posterity so they don't got to go up and get more asteroid chunks. Uh, yeah, they're just being, I guess we, we should also kind of define what uniformitarianism is. Cause that, that was a big jargony word yeah. that we threw out and it, it just means, yeah, it just means the net that stuff happens now the way it did back then. Charles Lyell told us all about yes, it. Absolutely. Charles, well done with the Charles Lyell. Yeah. Um, that's right. You know, he is, uh, he is buried in Westminster Abbey. It was pretty cool. Cause I got to see both, uh, Chuck Lyell and Chuck Darwin in the same little place when I, I took a visit there with my family a few years ago. But yes, <laughs> the law of uniformitarianism is sort of the the idea upon which all of these historic sciences is built. And that is that reactions happen now the same way they did in previous times. Um, and, you know, that's why we can understand um, sort of what is old and what is not, right? Yeah. It's like a groundbreaking thing. I talked about it at length when I was on History's B-Side podcast <laughs> and talking about Alfred Wallace. So why not, why not go back and listen to that episode? Throw History's B-Side some downloads, too. They'd love to have you. You know, but I think this, this story kind of shows us how quickly misinformation and disinformation can really like take hold of the public's imagination because everyone's talking about Bigfoot in Canada now and no one's talking about like the laws that could potentially be broken if it wasn't just a cast of a gorilla but I'll stop talking about that right now and I think our guest David Goldstein is trying to help it's a big job but you know do what you can we'll have that conversation in just a minute but first a message from another podcast I think you'll enjoy. Hi, friends. Cameron here. I host a bi-weekly podcast called Nature is Gay that explores themes of sex and sexuality and gender expression across the natural world. We talk about pseudocopulation and sociosexual behaviors, asexual reproduction, in plants and animals and fungi and every little thing in between. It's a great time. I'm a little biased, but I think you should check it out. That's Nature is Gay, available wherever you get podcasts. All right, we would like to welcome to the podcast our guest today, David Goldstein. David is the co-founder and CEO of Tovo Labs, 
a progressive political communications firm and co-founder and chief strategist for We Defend Truth, a nonprofit dedicated to fighting disinformation. David has worked on numerous local, state, and national campaigns as a pollster and strategist for leaders ranging from President Barack Obama and Senator Cory Booker in the U.S. to Prime Minister Gordon Brown in the U.K. Since 2016, David has collaborated with policymakers, academics, and the media to establish how to protect democracy in the new digital era, and he has led efforts that drove record-breaking turnout for Greta Thunberg at the global climate strike. I'm particularly excited to welcome David to the podcast because I've known David for I can't even tell you how many years. Uh, We both grew up in Kansas City, ran in similar circles, and he made a much bigger name for himself than I ever could hope to make for myself. And so it is a real treat to have David join us on the podcast today. David, thank you so much for coming on to Science Night. Uh, My pleasure, and uh, thank you so much for that wonderful intro. I don't know if you can tell over the Zoom, but I'm blushing a bit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I couldn't, but that's mostly because you're sitting kind of in a dark, shadowy part of the room, which I think actually is a metaphor for, uh, you know, the things that you've been combating lately. So one of the things that you're dealing with these days is disinformation, but that is fundamentally different, at least academically, from misinformation. We've talked about disinformation and misinformation on our podcast before, but I was wondering if you could just bring our listeners up to speed about the difference between the two really quickly. Misinformation is kind of the accidental or not malintentioned transmission of inaccurate or unfactual lies, mistruths. The person is not purposefully doing it to mislead. They genuinely believe it on some level to be true. So an example of this would be like, you know, a certain story about Richard Gere and a gerbil, which somehow everybody in the world knows. You know, I don't know that that's true. We may have been the only really? two people to hear it, but it's because we grew up in the same hometown. We heard no, that no, same no, no. story. I, I've traveled the world, and <laughs> the Richard Gere gerbil thing is is known. And there have been jokes that's about it, like Conan and all of that. Um, disinformation, on the other hand, is when people typically operating behind the scenes in their true identities or their true backers purposefully inject into our kind of information bloodstreams, data, stories, narratives intended to mislead people to take an action that they would not take under normal conditions if they knew the real facts at hand. So you can see that it's, you know, they're very close to each other. And I would say a successful disinformation campaign is reliant on people naively passing along what they're doing. And so, you know, it becomes misinformation when it gets to the organic level. But misinformation is much more naive and almost innocent. And it's almost part and parcel of just being human. We love gossip. Don't let a, the truth get in the way of a good story. You know, I think that has been and always been with us. Disinformation, though, there has been kind of a low level. Uh, thrum of it throughout history, you know, very vicious, very intentional rumor campaigns. What we're seeing now, though, is its explosion as a political tactic and as a as a sociological tactic to shift society in general against what is basically in the people's best interests by folks who are intentionally doing this to do harm. And I believe that to be new. I think if the KGB could have done this back in the 50s, 
mm-hmm. uh, they would have loved to have, but they simply didn't have the means to. And we do now, thanks to social and digital media. So um, I, I think that's why it is a topic on everyone's minds these days. And obviously, why I devote so much of my time to this cause. Great. So I I don't think our listeners will be surprised that we've invited you onto the podcast because we have talked regularly about the importance of communicating clearly and effectively with policymakers and helping policymakers clearly articulate the science that they are legislating. This fits really well into that mix of topics that we like to cover. But the difference here is that now we're looking at it from a perspective that is not either a policymaker or a scientist perspective. And so I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about what it's like to try to help policymakers find the right words so that they're not passing along misinformation, which can then be used in a disinformation campaign. What is that like? How do you, what's that process like for you? Anybody who's going to advise a policymaker and is an expert always has to contend with what Truman used to call, he always wanted a one-handed economist because he was sick and tired of economists saying, well, on one hand, it could be this, but on the other hand, it could be that. Mm -hmm. There is an ambiguity and a nuance to science, uh, to truth, that is very difficult to cope with when it comes to a communications with the masses standpoint. So. For me, what I work on is trying to help them help their constituents understand that there is damage between what is being done and the outcome of that. So I try to focus very much on outcomes as a result of this, because there can be a lot of debate over this, but very frequently the outcomes are things that we can all see. Anything from Brexit to refusals to take the vaccines, those outcomes, I think, are very clear. But trying to cycle it all back to where that comes from, too much debate happens there, and it's just not helpful. So that's where I tend to start with is outcome-based, and then kind of reverse engineer something quicker, simpler, easier to grasp. And you can acknowledge nuance as long as you do it quickly. My ongoing frustrations during the pandemic was there was no clear articulation that I could find from a science-based communicator delineating between what had been proven to be true, Mm -hmm. either in large-scale observational studies or in the lab, and what was simply habit, which just seemed like a really good idea because we've always done that and we should just do it now. And what that opened was a huge aperture for people who wanted to attack the scientists speaking out to attack, because then you can say, well, they claimed this and they presented it as stone cold science and it's not, there's no study to support it. So how do we know what they're saying is true about everything else they've said? And it's a dangerous hole to put in your own armor And it's easy to cover it simply by saying, we definitely think you should mask because it's an excellent practice based upon societies that have successfully masked before we are still trying to get in place, you know, the kind of gold standard research. But for now, it's just a great idea versus 
put on masks all the time, mm-hmm. everywhere. You know, even when I heard that from people who I respect and admire, it really upset me because there was already data indicating this was an indoor transmitted virus and that walking around outdoors with a mask was next to useless. Mm-hmm. So I think that refusal to this belief that mainstream audiences are too stupid to understand nuance, to understand ambiguity, to understand caveats does us a lot of damage. And then the other thing that I try to emphasize is the other side always beats us by having these very powerful narratives, um, these very powerful stories that tend to place the person receiving the disinformation in an almost heroic or special type situation. They really do. They make it good and evil, you know, bad and everything else. People communicating what they feel to be true, what they feel to be science-spec, never, ever think about that part of it whatsoever. The feeling is, is that if I'm talking something that's truthful, if I'm saying something that's factual, that then my job is done. And it's just not. If you want to think about it, you know, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Mm-hmm. If the medicine is what you're trying to communicate, you need to think really hard about what your spoonful of sugar is. The right. disinformation guys, you could almost say all they all they try and figure out is the spoonful of sugar, right? And what they've discovered is you can basically get a person, to continue the horrible analogy, to basically eat a turd as long as you've got the right concoction of sugar wrapped around it. You actually raise a couple of really important points that I want to tie back into science for a second. And the first is this idea of storytelling. You say their side, right? We're referring here to um, the conservative side of the political spectrum. They always tell great stories. And those riveting stories are the reason that they're able to get so many people to buy into what they say. And that's because they're harnessing something that is a, a human ubiquitous trait. It is present in every single human society, storytelling is, because our brains are uniquely adapted to understand it. Um, That's one of the ways we pass down our history. And so um, you're absolutely right. We don't, this side, the other side, doesn't tell good stories. They try to use what we call the information deficit model of communication, basically saying that if someone doesn't have the best information or the right information, Uh, If we provide them with better information or the right information, they'll use that to make better decisions. We know that doesn't work. We absolutely know it doesn't work. One really good place you can look at is in my mirror when I look in the morning and I look at myself and I say, you know what? I know what I need to do to not look this way. I know what I need to eat. I know that I need to exercise, but I could always find a reason not to do what I need to do. Uh, because my brain can concoct a way to get me out of it. It's not that I need better information to make the right choices. I need the better motivation to make the right choices. And that is what the other side, as you call it, has been really effective at doing. The other point I actually want to want to sort of continue down with was this idea of nuance. That, uh, that the public can understand nuance, but we don't give them an opportunity to do it. And I think that this illustrates one of the biggest problems we've had during this pandemic, especially, but really over the last 40 years of um, legislative wars on science (laughs) in Congress. And that is that the public is not used to seeing science happening in real time. They're used to seeing science as a monolith. What does the science say? 
right? Oh, well, the science says this, so that's what we should do, right? As opposed to the science today says this, but the experiments running today and tomorrow might change our understanding of today's data. And that's where we were with this pandemic in a way that the public has not been prepared to understand. And so I'm wondering, how is it that you are able to be successful at running things like vaccination campaigns for COVID. And you did a, a marvelous job recently um, with a series of memes trying to get the general public to understand the importance of vaccinating. How can you overcome those sorts of real-time changes in the understanding that scientists have and therefore that public policymakers uh, are able to implement or use to implement new law or new guidelines or whatever it may be when the general public is already losing its trust in science because they're not used to things changing so rapidly? Great question. So I'll break it into two parts. Uh, start with the what we were doing on the vaccination campaign and what we do every time we go out there. There is uh, folks who work on disinformation who believe in like a head-on attack, right? You know, if it's Breitbart, we go after Breitbart. If it's uh, Fox, we go after Fox. I don't really believe in that because we're always going to be operating at a severe deficit to their sheer size. It's like playing whack-a-mole, right? It's like if David wanted to play whack-a-mole with Goliath. Okay, right. Right. I mean, it's just they're 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 massive entities backed by billions of dollars of wealth. We're just not going to be able to play at that level. On top of that, I don't find it to be effective. I think if somebody has told a story that has ensnared people. You will never get those people to release from it unless you can find a better story to tell. And I genuinely believe something that improves upon a story is when it is rooted in facts. Um, there is an authenticity to the truth that helps a story out. Um, but also it's incumbent upon the storyteller to find the emotional angle to find you know, the heroic angle that mm -hmm. the person can play, to find the antagonist who's going to be against them, what the resolution is, to th start thinking in those terms. So we think in those terms. And so we were like, if we are going to talk to rural white people who have refused to get vaccinated to this day, what can we do to make them trust us? What story can we tell to make them feel empowered? Mm -hmm. where, where can we lay out a case that they need to do this to continue as part of their identity, right? As Christian, as Trump supporter, you know, as, you know, pro-military, any of that, and take this action along with it. We are not looking ever to fundamentally shift who people are. We are looking to fundamentally shift a single action taken on a single day, um, which is infinitely more modest and, as we have found, to be achievable time mm -hmm. and time again. It sounds very similar to an approach that one of my colleagues here at Indiana University talks about when she t teaches um, scientists how to communicate their work better, and or more effectively, I should say, maybe not better, but more effectively to the public. And she talks about this idea of um, whether it's better to be correct or whether it's better to be effective, right? And um, she uses this example all the time of Broward County, Florida, which is a, um, a county in Florida that most of us remember from the 2000 election with hanging and dimpled chads and all that crap. But it's also home to Fort Lauderdale 
and several other municipalities that are reliant on beach tourism to keep their economy afloat. And of course, beach erosion is a huge problem in the face of climate change. Um, But even before climate change was the biggest issue that it is, or as big of an issue as it was, as it is now, it, it was an issue, beach erosion. And so how do you get legislation passed in that county to save the beaches without calling it policy to, you know, fortify us against, uh, against climate change, right? Well, if you frame it as an economy issue, as a tourism issue, instead of as a climate change issue, you can actually get both Republican and Democratic legislators to compromise and come together and work together in the interest of everybody's best, you know, everybody's good. And so this sounds very similar to that approach. Is it better to be specifically correct or is it better to be effective by finding the one thing that's going to help someone make a better decision or a decision that we want them to make rather than upend their entire identity? Um, Because again, a lot of this is tied to tribalism. Um, You know, if we our opinions are, are formed by the company that we keep. And if we get in new information that challenges those beliefs, we have one of two options. We can either change what we believe or we can dig our heels in because that's what we believe, right? And that's what you're up against. So tell us about the outcome here. Like, what did you find? What were you able to, to accomplish with this? So what we were able to accomplish is there was a Stanford study that came out um, a few weeks before we were in the field that found by promoting a Trump-based video with Trump basically telling people to get vaccinated, that they were able to achieve a spend of a dollar for ad spend equaled one new vaccination over the course of the campaign. Um, And they did this, you know, very rigorously at Stanford. They're not going to this up. Um, And, we beat them on all of the metrics that we were able to measure by a substantial amount. So the lesson for us was our model where we're worried first and foremost about engaging an audience and then later about the message or the action that we want them to take is an incredibly powerful one because it places your audience at the center. And, you know, you, you only need to look at Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, you know, some of the most you know, consumer-centric guys, their insane success, mm-hmm. that there's a power when you elevate the people whom you're talking to and look for how to basically gain permission to come into their lives and speak to them. So we were always trying to find what was funny for people, what was interesting for them. The last thing we ever wanted to do was to place ourselves in a position where we, where we were scolding them. And, you know, a ton of the messaging around the pandemic that came out of the past two years, I don't think any of it was intentionally scolding, but anytime you're saying to somebody, you are doing something that is hurtful, it's a scold. Mm-hmm. And there's no way to get around that. As opposed to telling someone, this is a great way for you to help yourself, your community, this is a way for you to help, you know, help everyone around you and yourself be healthier. You know, it's it's a totally different conversation um, to initiate um, and expand upon than what you're doing is bad. Stop it. And that's unfortunately where uh, I would say 
way too much of the of the like pro-truth community is mm-hmm. coming from in our uh, public facing communications. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I was reading something this past weekend, and I can't even remember where it was. It was some sort of popular science something about decision-making science. And the sort of basic premise of this argument was that people are better equipped to follow directions if you give them positive words than if you give them negative words. So for example, if you say, don't forget to do such and such, chances are that person will forget. But if you say, remember to do such and such, they're more likely to remember to do that. And I found that to be fascinating. It sounds like this is very similar, right? Don't put people back on their haunches, give them a reason to make the choice, right? Or to give them the positive encouragement to do it as opposed to the the scolding. Absolutely. And I'd say you can even elevate it further by saying like, hey, honey, remember to pick up the kids because it'll make them so happy, you know, to see your face at their school, right? Mm -hmm. And possibly even more, is when you add a joke before that. I too want to live without our kids for the rest of the week, but you know, <laughs> please remember to pick them up. You know, because the effect of humor is incredibly powerful. Uh, my personal hypothesis is that humor communicates in-group, out-group, in a very pro- in a very powerful, instinctual way. If you laugh at something that somebody else says. I think they register immediately as in-group. And I think that if you say something that, that is intended to be funny but makes somebody feel bad, that establishes out-group. So what happens as soon as you hear something from an in-group member is all of your mental defenses come down, right? And you're completely open to what comes next because you need, essentially, we desperately needed to know what the rest of the in-group was saying. Like if someone had just seen a lion over the hill, hell, we needed to know that. (laughs) I think it's understudied the power that humor can play um, and other things like what we've talked about before, storytelling. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is like about humor, you don't have to be that funny, which is what a lot of people struggle with. They want like professional comedy. But it's almost just making the attempt to make somebody laugh. They, They just appreciate that. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, because when you think about uh, comedians, they often seem lonely. Most of the comedians I've ever known, <laughs> like they're they're not really connecting with that in group, even though they're making lots of people laugh. Yeah, I've, I've you know my younger brother's a professional comedian, and he and I spoke about that, and you know he, he thinks well, it's a lot of loners who don't connect, but when we're on stage and we tell a joke and they laugh, um, it's like a connection to a twenty x. 100x power. Yeah. Um, yeah, sure. Up, you know. And they're incredible storytellers. I mean, that's that's how they're connecting, right? I mean, that's Well, and it's one of the things that most inspired me. My younger brother pointed it out. He's like, "Look at the horrible things that a Bill Burr will say, but mm-hmm. then he will talk you around to it using humor." You know, so he'll start from a very nasty premise like you, you should never hit a woman is bull. And of course, like immediately, like, "How dare you say that?" But then he spends 10 minutes you know, making jokes and cracking jokes until at the end of it, you're really drawn into it. Maybe not fully believing it yourself, but like, oh, I can understand why somebody would say that. Right, right. As opposed to just pulling your jaw back up off the floor. I can't believe somebody said that. Oh, I see where the logic is there. I just don't agree necessarily. Well, yeah. Look at the difference if Bill Burr said, you know, you should never hit a woman. It's bullshit. And here's X, Y, and Z reasons. You'd still hate his guts and you'd hate yourself for listening to it. But because he says you should never hit a woman's bullshit and then encapsulates 
everything he says into jokes, one right after the other, and you love right. laughing, you stick with them. You never right, turn it. Right. Sure. Um, so it's incredible. You say like 90% of the real hardcore feminists I know love Bill Burr just because, um, you know, they understand him. They understand where he's coming from. It's very interesting. I can't say I've watched too much Bill Burr, but I have definitely seen what you're talking about. And I know that it can be uncomfortable. So I, I think your point is an interesting one. I hadn't really given it much thought. And so now I'm gonna have to look at that through that new lens and, uh, and see if I agree. Um, I probably will come around to it. You know, you've been making me laugh though. That's why. Well, yeah. And you know, what we're going for with our material is our happiest moments is when somebody who is normally an antagonist to us, a Trump supporter, an anti-vaxxer, reshares a piece of our content, which is, you know, anti-Trump or, or, or very pro-vax and says, hey, I might not agree with this, but this is just too funny not to share. It just speaks to the absolute power, you know, of things like humor and having an emotional-based connection with people. So let's now take a little bit of a detour. Um, although I think it, it fits pretty nicely with the conversation that we've been having, there is some particularly important, timely news that I think will fit well into this, and that is the recent Supreme Court decision in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case, which overturned the landmark 1973 Roe versus Wade opinion, essentially making the right to have an abortion no longer protected under the Constitution. This is a political landmine right now, especially for one particular side of the political spectrum. But I think probably for both sides, there is going to be a lot of resonating um, in different ways uh, that this decision will sort of impact. And so what I want to ask you about is how we get the science of abortion and the science of pregnancy back into the fore here and into this conversation. Because you know, there is debate about at what point life begins, although there is not much debate about when viability of a fetus begins. And those are two fundamentally different things. And I don't want to even get into the conversation about the First Amendment religious clauses uh, that this might actually be abutting and causing problems for, because uh, both you and I have Jewish ancestry here. And so um, in our religion, a person is not a person until they take their first breath. And so a fetus is not a person. And in many cases, abortion is required to save the life of the mother. And uh, so, you know, not even getting into that discussion, which is one that is not science rooted, let's talk about um, how do we get information about um, embryology and pregnancy into the forefront of this conversation, which at this point it is not. It is just about killing, quote, babies. What are we going to do? How do we get there? Beautiful, delicious, wonderful spoonfuls of sugar, right? I mean, like we have to figure out how this necessary, incredibly important information can be communicated in a way that is engaging and interesting and not off-putting to the people who need to hear it most. And one of the things that I always start out with is a lot of my work over the past six years I've fought, I feel like I've fought people on my side harder than I've had to fight with like anti-vaxxers and like Trump supporters. 
That's because what I hear always from my side is why are we even spending money on this? You can't talk to Trump people. You can't talk to anti-vaxxers. Mm-hmm. Like just give up. I mean, we need to focus on our own side and turn out people in the movable bond. And it, it irritates the out of me because it's, it's anti-scientific, right? There's always the bell curve distribution, right? We're a population. So we are going to have a ton of bell curves. And it is even true in the case of something like abortion. There is the tales that are extremist and therefore interesting to the media to report on, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's wackadoo. And so they, they, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. But then there's that big mushy middle. And it's finding and isolating those people, speaking to them and bringing them. You either want to find the folks you can bring over or the folks you can at least neutralize and have them step out of the fight. Like that's almost just as powerful as winning a vote is getting somebody just not to vote for the side that you're fighting against. Mm -hmm. Um, And so once we accept that the facts that are life and death to us still require spoonfuls of sugar, which means like humility on our part, uh, attention to what the other side feels, right? Until we acknowledge that, that our life and death is not theirs, right? And it's almost like not even in their day-to-day lives, and find a way to bring what's what's crucial to us to them in a way that they will open their ears and listen will always fail. Will always fail. It's it's doomed to fail. I think that if they're uh, the smart folks over the next few months are going to be the ones concentrating on how do I get what is in my heart, what I'm most terrified of. How do I get that to be at least nominally important? right? Or at least inside the heads in a positive way of people who are dangerously close to my actual antagonists. And there's always going to be people you cannot reach always. Right. But that's got to think of the tale. There's so many more who you can reach just by being authentic, being humble um, and approaching it with things like love and humor and compassion for that other side. I think the folks who are going to be ineffective are going to be the ones who are only angry. And look, I say this as a Jew who believes in communicating with Nazis, you know, that, (laughs) you know, anger has its purposes. And I think if you're talking to your own side and you want your own side to come out and vote, anger and rage can be great. Um, But once you're talking about the middle and the folks on the other side, if you have any interest in pulling them over and you've got to open your heart up, open your brain up and figure out what they need to hear in order to hear what you need them to hear. So I'm hearing almost a positive sort of spin on this, right? Some optimism in your voice. Um, Is that misplaced? Am I misunderstanding that? Or do you have some optimism? Every single campaign I've run since Trump has been successful. Whatever we were trying to do, whatever we were trying to accomplish, we've consistently found significant Numbers of people can be reached and engaged simply by thinking of them and their needs first before ours, right? So Mm -hmm. on that level, I'm incredibly optimistic. I agree with Ronald Reagan. People are fundamentally good and and Frank and, you know, all those folks who believe that because I've seen Mm -hmm. it time and time again. What I'm not optimistic about is the machines 
that the disinfo people have behind them compared to what folks who are trying to push the truth out have behind us. It is billions and billions of dollars now. It is uh, state actors, it is intelligence agencies in foreign countries um, basically throwing everything at us um, mm -hmm. to undermine us using these lies. And what we are hoping, and what I'm hoping, is that we get enough funding for the truth to take its, you know, to me, its natural spot as the victor in that fight. Sure. This has been a really interesting conversation, David. I'm really grateful that you have come onto the Science Night podcast to talk about this with us today. I did want to ask you one sort of standard set of questions that we typically ask everyone, but I didn't have a good way to fit this in because everything you had to say was so timely and so <laughs> just so timely for right now that I didn't want to start with it. I didn't want to lead with it. But if someone was interested in getting into this line of work, how did you come to this place? How did you get where you are? What was your path? Uh, I worked in politics and basically how to talk about policy to voters um, in a way that was persuasive to them. I just noticed at a certain point in 2016, there was, not a, there was too much thought in going into what to say and too little thought going into what and how they're hearing it. Mm -hmm. And by not thinking at all about how information is absorbed, by voters, it, like all of the other work I was doing was worthless, it was absolutely worthless. So that's where I kind of pivoted over to. And to be honest, like, unfortunately, I'm, I'm still kind of fighting an uphill fight. I have a fantastic partner uh, with the mm -hmm. nonprofit with uh, Jamie Green, um, who's a world-class communications. But I think that for the most part, people, you know, are, are creatures of habit and they want to stick with I find the right message. If I find the right message, it's it's really not that, man. It's like, how are they going to hear it? If you're sure. not in their digital feeds, if you're not on their TVs, having the most perfect message in the world doesn't mean squat. So this is interesting, actually, because there's been some research over the last few years that has shown that there's sort of, not surprisingly, two Americas. And those two Americas um, are split with where they get their information. So in the top quartile, for example, of folks who understand science, they're getting their news from the internet or from the print versions of those internet web you know, web resources like the New York Times, Washington Post, you know, major uh, daily newspapers. Whereas the other America, um, the one that is in the bottom quartile of literacy and science, is getting most of their news from cable TV. And so how do we reach the folks that we need to reach when they're not reading, they're getting the same information from the same sources, um, when in fact, being able to be empathetic with them or find empathy with them is rooted in how we get in touch with them, right? I mean, how, where are you finding them? So how do you expect to be able to do that? I think we do ourselves a disservice by not accepting invitations to talk on Fox News. And then we're not good strategists when we forget the fact that the internet is an ad-based system. Mm -hmm. So all of these guys, Breitbart, foxnews.com, OANN, all of them sell ad inventory on their platforms to the highest bidder. Same with Facebook, same with Twitter, same with TikTok, right? So you can go to any of these and say, I want to talk to these guys and they'll tell you, okay, you need to spend this much money and you do, and you have that conversation with them. It's really just that simple. And we don't do anything with that completely open resource 
to us. And it's continually shocking to me. I mean, you know, just a, a quick story. Um, I know OANN, you know, this crazy extremist, right? Like, you know, make Fox look like MSNBC. They approached leading democratic organizations in 2020 and said, if you guys want to buy ad inventory on our sites and even on our TV channel, we'll sell it to you. And one of my contacts who got that said he was shocked. I was like, I'm not because they know we can't do anything with it because they know Mm -hmm. we'll just come across as lefty douchebags and turn off, you know, but it was, it it was first of all, a a huge instructional lesson for me on how open these systems are, albeit for money, but still they are open. And then two, how little time and effort to our detriment we put into how to really successfully optimize and utilize these openings. But they're there. This has been really interesting. David, again, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Um, Our guest is David Goldstein, who is a childhood friend of mine and also the CEO and co-founder of Tovo Labs, as well as, sorry, I lost the name of it. It is We Defend Truth. I wanted to call it... uh, Truth Not Lies, but that is uh, the old version, right? Now it has been renamed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was back when we were strictly political doing like five times. Excellent. So Chief Strategist for We Defend Truth, which is a nonprofit dedicated to fighting disinformation. David, thank you so much for your time. We are really grateful. Um, We'd love to have you come back sometime. My pleasure. And thank you, Jason, so much for having me on the show. One last question. Where can our listeners find you on social media? Twitter, I don't use it much, but it's at davidkgoldstein.com. Anybody of good meaning and intent is free to find me on Facebook, where I tend to post more of my thoughts because it's to my private group. And then We Defend Truth is also maintaining an active Twitter account, and we're going to start using that more aggressively to really point people towards the right resources on on these topics. And we will be sure to include a link to that um, on our show notes, and uh, as well as a link to some of the uh, the memes you've put together recently in your uh, vaccination campaign, which have been phenomenal. Um, They have certainly made me laugh. Um, Again, David, thank you so much. Of course. Take care, Jason. You have come to the end of another episode of the Science Night Podcast, but we got lots of things going on and coming your way. And if you're planning on going to Gen Con in Indianapolis, you can see us doing one of those things that are coming your way, where we'll be talking about the science of science fiction in a panel brought to you by Indiana Sciences. You can find out more about how to get tickets at our website, which is SciNight.com. It's right on the front page under Coming Events. And we'll also be talking about it on social media. So you should probably follow us. If you want to follow me, I am at James underscore read three. And I promise I'll talk about Gen Con stuff and not just the Philadelphia Phillies. Now they're all breaking their hands. Steffi, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter at Steffi Deem or on Instagram at Starshipin. And Jason, where can everybody find you? You can find me at Twitter at OregonJM. Follow the podcast at Science Night One and be sure to check out our website, SciNight.com, for past episodes, links to the stories we cover and the people we talk to, upcoming live events, and of course, our merch. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, but until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz.
three, two, three, two, two one. one. Do you forgot? Like I that did. was I too could, delayed. It's not that, that I could so forget. It's that I, I said two when I meant to say three. And then I'm like, a three, two. Yeah, it was bad.